If you have a Bible, open up to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start there. We're not going to uh, finish there, but we're going to start there. Daniel chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I was, I was uh, in preparation for this message, I was thinking um, long and hard about uh, the, the idea of worship and about experiencing God. Um, I don't know about you. I can only speak for myself. Um, but, you know, we are... Uh, we're very spiritual beings. I know we don't always think about it in the West. You know, we, we think of how uh, corporeal we are, how physical we are. Uh, we deal in the physical. We, we see and, and, and we feel and we touch and we hear. Um, but really, at the end of the day, you and I, we are spirit. We have a soul. We are not just our body. And in fact... As we worship God, the Scriptures say that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And in my own life, there have been moments where I I can remember specifically having that spiritual experience that was so high, that was so deep and and earnest with the Lord that, that I almost could not put it to words. I know for those that went to Haiti just now, uh, some of them could probably say that they had a spiritual experience there that, that is just indescribable. And sometimes even when I'm sitting in the front row here at Coast and the worship is just especially moving in a, in a wonderful direction, I can, I can really sense the presence of the Lord. I don't know if that's your experience, but that's mine. And I think that the Lord wants us to commune with Him in spirit. My father, when he was... Uh, Younger than me, he was, he, went, he was in the Navy. And uh, he would, whenever he was back on base in San Diego area, he would go to church. And on one occasion, he went to a, a church service. It was a, a Calvary Chapel church service. And it was a, just this amazing service, amazing worship. The preaching was incredible. Many people were being saved that day. And as he and his friend got back into their, their pickup truck to, go, to drive back uh, to the ship, really, uh, there was a moment in the car where they both immediately looked at each other. My dad was driving and, and, and his friend was in the passenger seat. And as they were driving back, reminiscing on all that they had experienced in the church service, immediately they saw a flash of light and they both stared at each other. And they said, you know, did you see that? Do you see that? Both of them saw it at the exact same time. My dad has no idea to this day what it was but he supposes it to be an angel or an appearance of the Lord. Just a split second where both of them saw a flash of light seated right next to them for just an instant. Today, we are going to be looking at a topic that is not usually studied in Scripture. Uh, It's not something we we usually look at or, or study or consider. But today, we are going to talk about the topic of theophanies. Theophanies. And the title of my message today is, What is a Theophany? What is a Theophany? If you don't know what that word means, you're going to learn it today. And it has to do with the appearance of God to man. But first, we're going to begin back where we've been in Daniel. Turn to Daniel, chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, twenty. 23. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. And let's all stand as we read this together. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. This is where we left off last week. 
And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste, and he spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Verse 25, Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and they saw Nebuchadnezzar and the men. They saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. The smell of fire was not even on them. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not worship any god except their own god. You may be seated. This is where we left off last week in Daniel. And right now we're going to put a pause, press the pause button in our series in Daniel and discuss the matter of who might this individual have been? Uh, Who is this fourth person who's in the midst of the fire, even though Nebuchadnezzar had thrown in only three? Who was this fourth person in the midst of the fire? Well, Nebuchadnezzar gives some descriptions. And it's interesting, the descriptions are coming from his mouth. So from a pagan, polytheistic king, we are going to get his take, if you will, on what he is beholding in the midst of the fire. And the first thing he says is what? He says, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing we could say here uh, in, in what Nebuchadnezzar sees is he sees a man. He, he notices that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've gone in, and he sees a fourth, and he identifies the fourth as like gender to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I see a man, he says. Secondly, he says, and the form of this fourth man is like the Son of God. Now the phrase, Son of God, can also be translated as sons of God, sons of the gods, plural, or son of the gods, I should say. The Hebrew word for God here is Elohim. The word itself is inherently plural. In other words, any time you see it in the Hebrew text, it's going to be plural. But context is what determines whether or not we translate it as a singular or as a plural. And so we always pay attention to context to figure out whether or not this is God or gods, as in pagan gods. Given the fact that this description comes on the mouth of a very pagan and polytheistic king, we should probably expect him to be saying that the form of the fourth man is like the son of the gods. In other words, the king believed that this person had supernatural characteristics. He didn't understand completely at that time, it seems, the Lord God of Israel. He had caught glimpses of Him from chapter 2. But Nebuchadnezzar was still a pagan polytheistic king. And so it's likely that as he's looking at this, he's describing whatever he's seeing, this fourth man, as a son of the gods. So this person was a man, and this person possessed supernatural characteristics. But then there's one final description. 
In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar offers one final term to describe this person. He calls him God's angel. God's angel. Now, at face value, this might seem to settle it for many Bible readers and scholars alike. Nebuchadnezzar calls him an angel. In Hebrew, it's malach. And in fact, the primary meaning of the word malach in Hebrew is angel. But the word malach can also be defined as a messenger or an ambassador. In other words, there's two ways to understand malach. On the one hand, there's uh, uh, the, the, the nature of malach, which is an angel. On the other hand, there's the office of malach, which means messenger or envoy or, or servant, ambassador. It's interesting that the first use of the word malach can also is also defined in this messenger, ambassador um, kind of role. In fact, the, the, the first use we find of, of, of malach, of angel, is all the way back in Genesis chapter 16. Take a look at Genesis chapter 16, beginning in verse 7. It says this, Now the angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar, all the way back in chapter 16, found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. Jump down to verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Notice Hagar's response. Verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also seen him? Who sees me? This is kind of fascinating, isn't it? Notice, the first ever mention of the word malach in Scripture, angel, all the way up in chapter 16 of Genesis, verse 7, the first mention of malach in Scripture <clears throat> goes on to explain that the angel of the Lord was in fact God Himself. In biblical terminology, we call this a theophany. A theophany. And in your outline today, I have a definition for us to, to jot down. A theophany is a temporal, physical manifestation of God to humans. This manifestation is usually, but not always, in human form. In other words, it, God reveals Himself usually, but not always, in human form. Theophany. From uh, the Greek word theos, meaning God. And then the, the phani is from phanero in Greek, meaning to reveal or to show oneself, um, to display, to be made manifest. Theophany. My hope today is not to prove that the fourth person in the fire of Daniel chapter 3 was in fact a theophany. In fact, that story is actually very much open for debate. Uh, it could have been an angel. It could have been the Lord, uh, but you could go on either side of the fence based on the evidence. But what isn't open for debate is this. God has often revealed himself in theophanies throughout the history of mankind. And today, I'd like us to consider some of the stories in Scripture that speak about such theophanies. And I'd really like us to focus in on three questions Three primary questions that we're going to be considering. The first is this. 
Number one, what does a theophany look like? When we see a theophany in Scripture, what are its various forms? Number two, what is the purpose of a theophany? Why were they given? Why were they offered to mankind? And thirdly, do theophanies have significance for today? Do theophanies have significance for today? So let's zero in on that first question. We're going we're gonna to focus in on it right now. What does a theophany look like? What does a theophany look like? How has God revealed Himself in theophanies to mankind? In what forms has God appeared? And let me ask, let me pose a question uh, to you out there. Uh, can you think of one of the most famous theophanies in all of the Old Testament? Who, who knows of one of the most famous ones? Doug? The burning bush, number one. Ding, ding, ding. You get a candy afterwards, Doug. Nice job. The burning bush, right? In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, we see Moses interacting with the Lord in the form of a burning bush. Um, There's no mention of of angel in in Exodus 3 and 4. It's said over and over again that Moses is speaking to the Lord who is revealing Himself in a theophany a manifestation of God in the form of a burning bush. Not long after the burning bush experience, Moses, he takes the Israelites, pulls them out of Egypt, and they travel in the wilderness. And how do they travel? Notice this. By a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that pillar, that, that, that cloud and that fire in the sky is said to be the, the Lord Himself. The Lord Himself was leading them out of Egypt and into the promised land. So we see here two manifestations in nature. We see uh, in the form of a bush, a plant that the Lord has revealed Himself to Moses. We see elements, elements of fire and of a cloud in the sky in, in ways in which God has revealed Himself in theophanies. But there's a third uh, most prominent form that God has revealed Himself. The third one is in human form. In human form. Now that might seem rather obvious. We know that Jesus Christ has revealed the Father in human form. He is the God-Man. He came to earth and was uh, incarnated, wrapped in flesh, and came to earth to testify of the Lord. But even prior to Christ, even prior, I should say, to the time of of Jesus' earthly life, we have multiple instances in which theophanies appear in human form. Take a look at Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. This is a story about Abraham here. It says, Then the Lord, the Lord, appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees of Mamre. And as he was sitting in the tent in the heat of the day, so Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and beheld, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Now, if you go on to read in Genesis 18, we're not going to go through the whole story, but if you were to go on to read, you would, I, these three men would be identified as two angels and the Lord. Two angels and the Lord Himself came to meet with Abraham below the terebinth tree, according to Genesis 18. Now, the terebinth tree is, uh, was most likely a pistachio tree. So if you're looking to see the Lord, go eat some pistachios. That's the lesson of Genesis 18. Just kidding. How many of you like pistachios out there? I hate them. 
I think they're gross. But hey, I guess you know the Lord. I guess the Lord likes pistachios, right? Terebinth. All right. I have never seen the Lord. That's right. That's right, Scott. I've never. I've never tasted the goodness right there. The story goes on to indicate in Genesis 18 that it was two angels, the same two angels, by the way, in the story that went on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord who met with Abraham. And it says that Abraham and Sarah spoke to the Lord face to face. Now, when we think about the Lord God, when we think about who He is, we know from Scripture that He exists in triune form. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so a simple question that arises from a story like Genesis 18 is this. Which member of the Godhead is speaking with Abraham? Which member of the Godhead is speaking with Abraham? Now, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, which is, is really what we do in, in what's called you know, systematic theology or, or, or biblical theology, you know, within books of the Bible and within other books of the Bible, we compare Scripture with Scripture to try to identify and narrow down who it is that Abraham may be speaking with. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we realize that one member of the Godhead is probably, most certainly, to be ruled out. Take a look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. It says, And he said, this is Moses speaking, Please, Lord, show me your glory. And then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, the Lord says. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But the Lord said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. No man shall see God and live. Notice John 1.18, later on in the New Testament. Jesus, uh, John declares that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So here we have the testimony of Scripture from Exodus to John and other places in between that reflect the fact that God is Spirit. God exists in spirit form that He cannot be seen by mankind lest man die. And John, in fact, says no one, no one has seen God at any time. Therefore, we can conclude based on comparing Scripture with Scripture that Abraham could not have been speaking with God the Father for both, the Father, uh, for, for both Moses and John attest to the fact that no man has seen the Father. It is on this point, it is on this point, that among many other points, that we part ways with groups like uh, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, whose founder Joseph Smith claims to have seen God the Father. Smith also claims to have seen the Father in human form, with a body, which flies in the face of other portions of Scripture, like John 4.24 that teaches that the Father exists in spirit form. Friends, the Bible is clear. No man, no one has seen the Father. And that includes the theophany with Abraham here in Genesis 18. Or any other theophany in which God manifests Himself in human form. But there is a member of the triune Godhead who is able to be seen. And who is quite accustomed to human form. He is none other than God the Son, the Messiah, the Savior 
Jesus Christ. The theophany of Genesis 18 is clear. Abraham spoke to the Lord face to face, like he would speak to another man. But we know this could not have been God the Father, because no man has seen God. And there is no evidence that this would be God the Holy Spirit, for He is not ever said to have abandoned His spirit form. But there is one member of the Godhead who has left His heavenly presence, heavenly throne room, to be incarnated in flesh, to come to earth and dwell with man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to say in summary here, in summary form, what are we saying about a theophany in human form? We're saying this. Whenever a theophany is said to occur in human form, we can be sure that such a person is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. To be more precise, such a theophany is called a Christophany. A Christophany is a theophany in human form. In human form. This might be a little heady for some of us. You might be wondering, you know, what's the, what's the purpose of, of this? But we're, as we dig through this matter of doctrine, we're going to be able to see more and more clearly how and why God has chosen to reveal Himself in the ways that He has. But a theophany, when it is in human form, we can be sure that that theophany is none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate. Lord Jesus Christ speaking with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18. More precisely, a Christophany. An appearance of Christ. What about the second question that is on our, our plate today? What is the purpose of a theophany? What is the purpose of a theophany? I want to say this on your outline. I don't believe I have this up on the screen. But on, on the next page of your outline, theophanies are a rarity. A rarity in Scripture. But when they occur, they tend to mark a defining moment in the lives of the recipients. I'll say that again. Theophanies are a rarity in Scripture. But when they occur, they tend to mark a defining moment in the lives of the recipients. Now, God has used theophanies in a variety of different ways. So this, this purpose question that we're coming to now, I'm going to answer in a variety of ways. Because each time God has appeared to man, um, it, it's been for different reasons. One of the first reasons that God appeared to man was, the first one, to confront great sin. To confront great sin. You remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve? Let's take a look at the story. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Then they, Adam and Eve, this is right after they had sinned, then they heard the sound of of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, some scholars will chalk this up to what's called anthropomorphism. In other words, the, 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 the indication of the, the sound of the Lord or the walking of the Lord or the speaking of the Lord to Adam and Eve, that the, these are anthropomorphisms, that they are just uh, uh, ways of saying that Adam and Eve were communicating with God 
who actually wasn't there but was very much removed from them. Um, I see no indication of that in this story. In fact, I see just the opposite. Adam and Eve are hiding. They're physically trying to hide from the Lord God. And they hear Him walking near them. And so they try to hide and they try to get away because they've sinned. And they try to, to, to hide from the Lord God. And yet, here He comes and says, where are you? And they say, I heard your voice in the garden I was, and we were afraid because we were naked, so we hid. Here we have one of the first, the first theophany in Scripture. And it's a theophany in human form. And so, as I approach the word here, if it, if it is a theophany of the Lord, an appearance of the Lord, and if it's a theophany in human form, then it seems clear that this can also be called a Christophany. It is a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. Now, for some of us, that's brand new. We've never heard of that before. We've read the story of Adam and Eve a thousand times, but we've never considered the fact that this very well could have been the Messiah walking with them in the garden. And in fact, later on, in verse 15, you have the great, uh, you have the great prophecy, right? The great prophecy of what's going to happen in the future between the serpent and between the seed of the woman. A prophecy that's still being carried out today. The age-old age battle between the Lord Jesus Christ and our enemy, the adversary, Satan. And Jesus Christ Himself prophesied about this, this great battle in Genesis 3.15, not long after He confronted them of sin. And so here we have the first theophany, and the purpose of it was to confront their sin. Let's move on to a, a second theophany. And we, we just got through looking at this one, but now we're going to continue on in it. The second purpose for a theophany is to offer a tremendous promise. Offer a tremendous promise. Notice our story in Genesis 18 again with the Lord, Abraham, and Sarah. Notice verse 10. Then He said, and this is the Lord speaking, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was, uh, it says, and Sarah was listening in the tent next door. Here, here we have the Lord, the Lord God, a theophany in human form, therefore a Christophany. We have Jesus Christ pre-incarnate speaking with Abraham and Sarah. And what does He do? He offers them a promise. He gives them a great and fantastic promise. He looks at those who are a hundred years old and says to them, these two individuals who by no account should have a child, he says, you will soon be with child. Son of the promise, Isaac. The second purpose of theophany is to offer a tremendous promise. How about a third purpose of a theophany? A third purpose is to give blessing and encouragement. Turn to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, beginning in verse 24. Here we have the story of Jacob wrestling with a man, it says, we're going to learn the identity of this man as we read the story. Then Jacob was left alone. A little small print up there. Sorry about that. In fact, I think I cut off the bottom. That's all right. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the, the breaking of day. 
And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, this is the man that he's wrestling with. The man said, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, you, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jump down to verse, uh, uh, end of verse 29. It says, and he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Jacob himself gives indication of who he was wrestling with. He gives commentary, if you will. Moses, recounting the story, gives Jacob's commentary as to who this was that he was wrestling with. And Jacob says, I wrestled with God Himself and prevailed. In fact, if you turn to Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, in Hosea chapter 12, 3 and 4, you'll see another confirmation of the fact that it was God Himself who was wrestling with Jacob. A theophany in human form, therefore a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ coming with a purpose. And this purpose was to bless Jacob. Was to, to bless him abundantly as he blessed Abraham and Isaac before him. And uh, to, 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 to bless him with, of course, the twelve sons of Israel and the twelve tribes. A few more purposes. We're going to move through these more quickly. A fourth purpose is to prophesy of future events. To prophesy of future events. You, you may recall in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses was, get, not only did God reveal himself in a burning bush, but, but God told Moses of what was about to happen in Egypt. He said exactly what was about to transpire. He prophesied of future events. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees the Lord. And what happens? He gets visions. And we're going to come to this a, a few months from now. He gets visions of what's going to happen in the last days. From chapter 7 onward. Theophanies, no doubt. One in the form of a burning bush. Another, Daniel has a vision of the Ancient of Days and one like the Son of Man prophesying of future events. A fifth purpose, to give courage before battle. Give courage before battle. In Joshua 5, we read a story in which Joshua, prior to the battle of Jericho, the, 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 the story of the walls coming down, Joshua was met by a man known as the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua immediately fell down and worshipped him. And this, this man that had met with him did not scold him, did not rebuke him for falling down to worship him. Later on in Revelation, John the Apostle falls down to worship an angel by accident and the angel rebuked him and said, Stand up, you don't worship me. And yet when Joshua fell down to worship before this commander of the Lord's army, that man did not scold him. That man received that worship. Theophany, in human form, a Christophany, an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, telling Joshua that Jericho would fall before him. Two more. Six, it is to commission a prophet or a leader. We see this, we see this all over the prophets in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We're not going to turn to these passages. But it is to commission, to, to dedicate, to initiate a great moment where a prophet of God or a great leader of God is commissioned. 
And seventh, and finally, to stir up faith. I love this one. To stir up faith in unbelievers. You say, what? Is it, is it possible that God Himself could, re- could reveal Himself to one who did not know Him? Absolutely. We see that story in the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. Acts 9, verse 3. And as Paul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Incredible. Here we have a New Testament theophany, right? A theophany who reveals himself as the Lord Jesus Christ, a Christophany. And Paul sees the light, asks him who it is. It's Jesus. Paul falls to the ground. Saul falls to the ground. And Jesus proceeds to tell him what he wants him to do, how he wants him to change his life from killing Christians to becoming one, to becoming one of the greatest of all. Great moments, defining moments. They're rarities in Scripture. There's not a ton of them. But when you see them, you see defining moments in the history of God's revelation through theophanies. Now, a final question to consider. Do theophanies have significance for today? Do theophanies have significance for today? Well, I think the answer to that is plainly yes. Plainly yes. Peter spoke, and I've mentioned this many, many a times, and we'll say it again. In Acts 2, Peter said that in the last days we would see visions and dreams increasing. And this prophecy of Peter in Acts 2 has not yet come to pass. Acts 2.17 It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, he's quoting Joel, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on My men servants and My maidservants I will pour out My Spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Peter says as much. He says there will be visions. There will be dreams. There will be manifestations. He doesn't specifically indicate that it would be the Lord Himself. That's plain. But by all accounts, by, by the account of Scripture, we should expect nothing less. Angels? Sure. Miracles? Sure. Signs? Sure. The Lord Himself? Yes. It isn't coincidence that in the Middle East, Africa, and the Far East today, There are a growing number of stories of people claiming to have had a vision of Jesus. In fact, Campus Crusade uh, Jesus film teams, they go over to these places. I can't believe the stories that you read. If you were to go on their website, go on the Campus Crusade website, find the Jesus film uh, label on their website, and then read some of the testimonies of the team members. You will find story after story after story in which these these film teams took the Jesus film into a tribe, into an indigenous area. They put the film up on the screen. It was the first movie these people had ever seen in their entire lives. And as they showed the film, when Jesus came on, there have been many accounts in which the people would gasp. And the film teams would say, what's wrong? 
And they would say, we saw this man in our village last week. We saw this man. He walked through our village. A theophany. An appearance of God. Now, are, are, we, to, are we to discount that? Maybe on occasion, with good reason. Are we to discount story after story after story after story? I'm a little hard-pressed to do that. I'm a little hard-pressed to, to discount the testimony of fellow believers giving up their lives to go to tribal and indigenous areas to show a film that others might be saved and to hear story after story of these tribes saying, I've seen that man before. It's a miracle. It's a theophany. A while back I showed a clip from Joel Rosenberg, a prominent prophecy scholar, who said that the Arab world is becoming filled with stories of Jesus appearing. There are two books out, and I mentioned one last week. Um, I don't mean to endorse anything, but they are interesting reads. The first, 90 Minutes in Heaven, this is the book I've read. An amazing story. Uh, the second is like it, Heaven is for Real. How many of you have read uh, Heaven is for Real? Okay, I'm going to read that next. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not here to endorse these books, uh, but I am here to say this. These are two books out. They're current. The Heaven is for Real one is about a little boy who uh, who was in surgery and uh, lost his life in surgery and then came back. And he recounts his experience in heaven with such great detail that it will blow your mind. The stories that he told his family, things that he saw, he saw, he claims he, he saw his, uh, his, uh, his sister who had miscarried that his parents had never spoken to him about. He claims to have seen his, his great-grandfather whom his parents had never shown him a picture of. And when they showed him a picture, he finally said, yeah, that's him. Um, he claims to have seen Jesus. These stories are, you know, these are popular books. And uh, for some of you, you might look at them with skepticism and say, come on, maybe they're just trying to make a buck. You know what? That could be true. That could be true. But you know what else could be true? Acts 2, 17 and 18. Visions. Dreams manifestations in the last days. Stories, real stories of people seeing the Lord, of having a heavenly experience and coming back to earth to tell us about it. Are we really going to discount every single one of those stories? Are we really going to reject them out of hand? I submit to you that if so long as you read this with a careful eye, it's not this. But so long as you read it with a careful eye and, and within, with, 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 with prudence, um, you will find that this brings you more joy than anything. brings you more hope than anything. As you read these stories, you'll, you'll begin to learn that, my goodness, what we, our hope, what we have been waiting for, it really does await us in the life to come. It really is as glorious as the Scriptures say it is. It really is as amazing as the Lord has told us. It brings us hope. I cannot tell you how much this book has brought me hope in the last few weeks. I have been so encouraged by it. I encourage you to pick up one of those. Lastly, it seems to me that there's certainly going to be at least one more great theophany. Zechariah 14 
and Revelation 19 speak to this one last final theophany. We call it the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will there be theophanies later on in life? You bet there will. This one guarantees it. Are they significant for today? You bet they are. Of course they are. We can take encouragement from Acts 2 that fellow believers will see great manifestations of God. We can take encouragement from the stories of people who claim to have had a heavenly vision. Though we read them carefully and with scrutiny, we should take encouragement where we can, where possible. We should take hope in the stories of Campus Crusade and others, what's happening around the world, visions of Jesus in the Arab world. Must we believe all of them? No. Are some of them forgeries? Yes. But I suggest to you that to believe none of them would fly in the face of what God has said. In the end, we're to become a people that awaits the last theophany on the last day when Jesus sets His feet on the Mount of Olives to protect Israel and to fight against the enemies of God. That will be a theophany that no one can deny. And as we wait for that day, let us not become discouraged or dismayed, but rather let us lay hold of the revelation that Jesus Christ has given to us he said this in John 14:9, "He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father." And so we don't need, we don't need a special manifestation. We don't need that moment in the car where we thought we saw an angel. We don't necessarily need to read those books, though they are helpful in the end. We need to remember that it is through Jesus Christ that the Father has been revealed. And if we know Him, then we know God. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not on temporal theophanies. Let us fix our eyes on the One who has not only revealed God to mankind through His life, death, and resurrection, but also the One who will return in glory to rule and reign forever and ever in the final theophany. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You, Father, for this a moment together as we consider this unique topic of theophanies. Lord, I don't know every experience of those of us in the audience today. I know the last time we spoke of, of dreams and of visions, there were in fact testimonies among our friends here at Coast of people who had seen the Lord do great and mighty things. And so Lord, we don't discount that You can choose to reveal Yourself to us in special and magnificent ways. And Lord, if that would be Your desire to do that to us one day, we would welcome it and look forward to it. But Father, we're not going to pin our faith to it. Instead, we're going to take hope from the testimonies of Scripture that we already see, that we've already read. And Father, ultimately, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the perfect manifestation of You who perfectly exemplifies You, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing that as we do, we are seeing You as clearly as possible. God, help us to have hope in that last day. May it encourage us now, knowing that Jesus Christ will return for one last Christophany on this earth, in which He comes in all might and power to reign and rule forever. We look forward to that day, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.